0: and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning through His Word. Lord, thank You that we can come and hear You. May Your servant proclaim the truth of Your Word, which is everlasting truth. We ask, Lord, really that You would just feed Your sheep. We are Your sheep, Lord. Feed us. Thank You for Your Word that is so good. Nourish us and then allow us to go forth with new strength to live for you in thanksgiving in jesus name amen i enjoy talking to engineers how many engineers do we have here you probably know i've talked to a lot of you i enjoy talking to engineers i feel like they just understand things that i take for granted like how things work i never know how things work but the engineers seem to know i guess it's kind of like talking to physical therapists or physicians as well because We talk to them about the body and they know the inner workings and the structure and they seem to have a deeper understanding of the thing. And having a deeper understanding of a thing often gives us a greater appreciation for it and a greater ability to use it properly. When we understand how the pieces fit, we can see something more about how they are to be used. Well, Paul Paul thinks that of the church. Paul thinks that about the church and the way it functions. To appreciate the church, to properly function, we have to have a real sense of how it all comes together. What the structure is. How the pieces fit. And what they have to do with one another. What's the church? Who makes up the church? What unites the church? What's the role of the church? Lots of questions Can be answered the more we understand the basic and inner structure of the body of Christ and how it comes together. And that's what Paul does in our passage this morning so powerfully. I don't know if you remember from last week that Paul really wanted the Ephesian Christians to know and understand the idea that Christ is our peace, Christ broke down the divisions. The things that were were keeping the Gentiles far from God and the things that were keeping the Gentiles far from the Jewish people. And we're also told that the things that kept both the Jews and the Gentiles away from God, Jesus abolished, Jesus destroyed by going to the cross and shedding His blood. Whatever was keeping us far away from God, Jesus tore down to bring us close. What an amazing reality. Paul said that through Christ, in the Spirit, all Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, have access to the Father. Amazing. The chasm that was so vast was bridged. The sign and the laws and the temple itself and the way it said, stay away, stay away, stay out, now says in Christ, come on in welcome in a few short verses this morning paul is going to help us christians grasp just how close we are both to the lord and also to each other please open your bibles with me to ephesians 2 i hope that you all grab a bible there's one in the under the seat in front of you you can turn to page 977 Ephesians chapter 2, please open the Bibles and keep them open. And we're going to start at verse 19. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 19. Listen to what Paul writes. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints by the Spirit. Amen? It's amazing just how much Paul the Apostle can pack into a few verses. But I want to go with two main thoughts that I believe are here that Paul is bringing to our attention. You can turn on the back of your bulletin and you can fill in there. There are two main thoughts, with each with some subpoints. Here we find these two things about our relationships with God and each other. First, you can fill in, we're in God's kingdom and family. Beloved, if you are a Christian, this is true about you. We are in God's kingdom and we are in God's family. Second, He, God, dwells in us collectively. God dwells in us collectively and the implications are vast. Let's start with verse 19. Take a look there, our first point. We're in His kingdom and family. Notice that Paul lays out two images Over the last number of weeks, we've been seeing so many images that Paul is laying out for us to have a a sense of who we are in Christ. But he lays out these two images to help describe who we are as Christians who were once far off. Notice what he says. First, he calls us fellow citizens with the saints. That's kingdom language. And second, he calls them members of the household of God. That's family language citizens and members of the family. Notice actually, if you look at the beginning of verse 19, there's two other images that he uses, but those are there to form a contrast. He's saying this is what you're not any longer. You're not strangers. You're not aliens. You have to understand that uh, earlier in that same chapter, Paul had said that they were separated from Christ. They were alienated from, the, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants. But he's telling them now that that's not the case any longer. You're not far. Now you're near. You're no longer an outsider. You are now an insider. You're in the kingdom. You're in the family. Now think about what strangers were. At that time, strangers... That's a language that was used of foreigners who would have been kind of traveling through the land. They were strange to the land. They weren't staying very long. They were just kind of passing through. The word aliens was referring to resident aliens. They lived among the people, but they were never really accepted as of the people. They weren't accepted by the people. They also didn't accept that themselves because their citizenship was somewhere else. They didn't have the same privileges as everyone else living in that area. That were citizens. They didn't have the same rights. And Paul's saying, Look, you once were that, but now you are no longer that. Don't think of yourself as just passing through. Don't think of yourself as on the margins, O oh Christian. You are near to God, you are near to His people. In fact, you are His people. He wants the Gentiles to know that they're not just welcome. They are themselves God's very people. Think of that language fellow citizens. Citizen has rights and, and privileges. In this country, can run for office, can participate fully, can vote. In the Roman world, a citizen had the right not to be beaten without trial. Apparently, others could be beaten without trial. They had the right to appeal to Caesar, others could not. They would not ever be crucified. Paul's saying, look, you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, with all other believers. Remember, he starts with the language of saint, holy one, as referring to Christians. We have the same status as every other Christian. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Amen? This is really important, beloved. The Gentiles would have felt like they're still foreigners. Paul's saying no. No. Your fellow citizens. In Christ, we're citizens of heaven, Paul tells us Philippians 3.20. Citizenship meant identity. And at that time, it was clear a common goal. And so our citizenship in Christ is meaningful. What about the other image? Members of the household of God. Paul's saying this, listen, not only are we made citizens instead of strangers, but we're actually in Christ members of the very household and family of God. We're kinsmen with God. We're kinfolk with everyone else who is a part of God's household. Paul had already spoken in chapter 1 about being adopted into the family of God. That implies more than a kingdom connection. I, I feel a lot closer to my family than I do to other citizens in the United States. Paul's saying it implies intimacy with God, with each other. A familial connection. Remember verse 18? You could look back at it. Verse 18 told us that now we have access to God as our Father in His living room, in His household. It's one thing to live in the same country as others. It's another to live in the same home. That's what Paul's urging us to see. The same inheritance, the same family dinners, Same privileges and responsibilities. You know, I was thinking about this when we would have large gatherings of of friends and, and even extended family at my parents' house. At some point, the guests leave. But the household stays. Beloved, that's us. We all stay. And by the way, this language means that everyone else in the household is a brother or a sister. That's the mindset that we are called to have with believers wherever we find them. We're family. It's the language of the New Testament. Brother, sister. Are you getting the vision that Paul is casting here? What he wants the Ephesian Christians who would have been Gentiles... to to understand about their relationship to God and to other Christians. We are not just people who share a common interest. We're we're not just people who live in the same vicinity. We're citizens together with the same kingdom identity, identity, and even more than that, we're family. We're insiders. We're close. We're intimate. I I think the, the Spanish saying is mi casa su casa, is that right? Right? In Armenian, we say, right? let it feel like it's your home, because it is. We're in the same home, the same family. Intimacy with the father and all of his household. We're not guests anymore. There are a lot of implications we're going to come back to, but as usual, I want you to notice what happens with Paul because one image for Paul almost always leads to another image. And as Paul is thinking about this idea of the household of God, the thought of house of God actually seems to fill Paul's mind. And so Paul begins to think not only about the family household, but he starts thinking about the structure, the building, the temple. We're the kingdom and family, but now he turns to another image. We're the temple of God. Look at verses 20-22. through We Christians make up the dwelling place of God on earth. Imagine that. Just stop and think about what that means. We Christians together are the dwelling place of God on earth. Unheard of. Being a family member means that we get to be in His home, in His kingdom, but to be described as the temple of God means that He finds His home in us. He's with us. Beloved, this is powerful for many, many reasons. I want you to take that image in. The church isn't a physical building. We know that. It's the people. Yes and amen. But Paul wants us to think about the church, the gathered body of believers, as some sort of a spiritual structure that he refers to as a temple. He wants the concept of building to help us understand what the church is on this earth. Here's our second point. He dwells in us collectively. Paul's talking to the Ephesian Christians about our corporate existence. I think he's talking about the universal church, but that has implications for every local church as well. The overall collective reality, Jews, Gentiles, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Altogether Christians, when we are gathered, we are the temple of God. Here's the question I think Paul's answering here how is it that we are collected how is it what makes us a universal body what makes us a collective body here paul describes the structure of the church look at verse 20 here's our first subpoint we're built upon the apostolic testimony we're built upon the apostolic testimony what does that mean let's see how paul lays it out how do we know we're part of one building versus another How do we know we're the church and the temple of God and not just some other gathering or a club? It depends on the foundation upon which we're built. That's the starting point. Paul pictures a foundation and he tells us, Christians, that we are being built as part of a structure on a particular foundation which makes us this particular building, the temple of God, the church. What's the foundation? Take a look and see what Paul says. It is the apostles and the prophets. Remember he speaks to Peter upon this rock. Well, what does this mean? Well, first, it's important to note that Paul says apostles and prophets. Do you notice that there, the order? He doesn't say prophets and apostles. This tells us that Paul isn't thinking about the Old Testament prophets. He's thinking about the New Testament ones. As a matter of fact, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul is going to go on to talk about the gifts that God has given to the church. And he starts with the apostles, then he says the prophets, and then the evangelists, and then the pastor-teachers for the equipping of the church, for ministry of the Word. The apostles were those sent by Christ as His witnesses. They had seen the resurrected Lord, and they were carrying His message forward. They testified to the world about the resurrected Jesus who they had lived with, breathed with, talked with. We're talking mainly the 12 and Paul. But then the sense that we have of the prophets, too, is that they have not seen Christ, the resurrected Christ, but they had received insight and knowledge to declare the mysteries of the gospel. As it was spreading from place to place, it was a gift from God for the expansion of the church. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14, where they are given revelations, it says, for the upbuilding of the church. By the way, that's why Paul says it's better to have the gift of prophecy than the gift of tongues. The gift of prophecy is for the building up of the church. The gift of tongues, that's for you, is the way Paul describes it. In Acts chapter 2, we know the story of Pentecost. And Paul gets, uh, Paul, not Paul, Peter is preaching the word as the Spirit has fallen on the the, the few believers. And he's preaching and preaching. And what happens? 3,000 people turn to the Lord that day. And we're told that they were added to the church. And then we see that that church, the very next verse, we're told that that church is described as being devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's how we know they're the church. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. In 1 John, John makes this statement. He says, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. What's he talking about? Who's the us? He's talking about the apostles' teaching. He's talking about what the New Testament teaches. The Gospel in its fullness. The apostles were sent out. The Spirit filled them to teach and preach to establish the church of jesus in other words what paul is telling the ephesian christians and us is this the foundation for the church what makes the church the church is the truth about god in christ as taught by the apostles and the prophets it's the gospel mystery revealed that's the foundation upon which the church is built truth taught in the new testament grounded in the old Elsewhere, Paul puts it this way, a pattern of sound words. Beloved, the point that Paul's getting to is that doctrine matters. Truth matters. Teaching matters. In fact, it is doctrine and teaching upon which the church is built. It's the foundation. And so we need to take it seriously. Now consider with me. What if the apostles' teaching Right this the preaching of the good news of Christ his death his life his death his burial and his resurrection his ascension the truth that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone the basics of the gospel in the new testament if this pattern of sound words that is the foundation what happens if that's removed the whole structure falls apart there is nothing left you see why so much of the new testament is a warning against false teachers and false prophets, and false gospels. One of the things that we have seen throughout the history of the church is that false teaching comes in and undermines this foundation. Early on, some false teachers arose to claim that Jesus never really took on flesh. He only appeared human. But if that were true, then we're still in our sins because no sacrifice has been made. Others rose up to say that Jesus wasn't truly God. He was the first creation of God. But if that were true, then we're still in our sins. Because no creature could take the full wrath of God deserved for our sins and survive. History is filled with false teaching that tried to destroy the church by building not on the foundation of the apostolic testimony, but on human reasoning and what feels right at the time and what the culture around them said and taught and believed. Beloved, sometimes people try to add to the Gospel. Sometimes people remove the Gospel entirely. Why? Because the Gospel, the truth of Christ and who He is, divides. It divides those who believe from those who do not believe. There is something exclusive about the Gospel. And people today especially want only inclusivity. Sometimes they think that inclusivity, maybe all the time, is more important than truth. The problem is inclusivity, not grounded in truth, is vapor. It has no meaning. It might make us feel good for a moment, but it cannot save us or anyone else that we care about. See, what the Jew and Gentile, what made them one new man in Christ was that they held firmly to the one true gospel in Christ. The message of the crucified Messiah who rose victorious, they had believed and trusted him and so were changed. We know that. If you've experienced Christ, if you've trusted him, you know that reality that it comes only from Christ. Without that, everything else falls apart. If that message is blurred, if that message is lost, if, if something is added to it as foundational or taken away from that foundation, we have nothing. Which is why Paul says that those who don't believe in Christ's resurrection are the most to be pitied if it hasn't occurred, right? If there's no resurrection, look at the end of verse 20, into verse 21, because I want you to notice this, the apostles and prophets weren't making up their own religion. They were pointing to the central figure, Christ Jesus alone, he's our Here's our second sub point. We're dependent on and shaped by Christ Himself. He's the cornerstone. The building is His, and it finds its entire definition in Him. Keeping in mind that image of building that Paul is, is laying out for us, Paul tells us that Christ Himself is what? He's the cornerstone of the temple. What's a cornerstone? As one author put it, it's the cornerstone marked the beginning of the foundation. It both carried a lot of the weight and it determined the shape of the building. Apparently, it also helped make the walls secure and tightly joined together. Everything about the foundation and the rest of the building depended on the cornerstone. There is no church without Jesus. You can't have a Christless Christianity, though often people try. Beloved, how often people try to separate Christ's moral teachings from Christ's purpose and person. Note that Paul says it's Christ who is the cornerstone, not just his teaching. Christ himself and and the work that he's done. By the way, in the 90s, they found five stones, large ones, that they believe made up the foundation of the Jerusalem temple. Five of them. The largest one measured, get this, 55 feet long, 14 feet wide, and 11 feet high. To give you a sense, I I marked it off during the week this week. It's from the stage all the way to the back of this sanctuary and almost the entire length of this center section and about my height. No, uh, double my height. Imagine that. Beloved, Christ is so much greater than that. Our cornerstone, the one that holds it all together, is Christ Jesus. The apostles' teaching is not their own. It's Christ, It's about Christ. It's because of Christ. Though the apostles were sent out to spread the word to establish the church throughout the world, it all depended on whether they faithfully took what Christ had taught and taught that. Remember, Paul has made it clear, We have everything in union with Christ. Christ did the work to save us, to redeem us, to sanctify us, to cleanse us. In other words, He has prepared us as stones to be built into this temple. That's the way Peter describes it in his letter. Think about what that means. All of the work that Christ has done, all that salvation that we've been describing over the last few months, all of the cleansing of our sins, all the shaping and sanctifying, That is Christ shaping us as stones for this thing called the temple to build one large glorious temple that is the dwelling place of God on earth. Look at verse 21. In Him, the whole structure is joined together. The way Paul's describing it, each stone is related to each other stone, but it's also all each one directly related to the cornerstone. We're tied to Christ and we're tied to each other. Look at verse 21 and going into verse 22. Being joined together. Or verse 22, being built together. He doesn't build one stone and just let it go. He builds it into the temple. Onto the foundation. By the way, those verses or those for those verbs, there are present tense, being joined, being built. Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to have a vision of the temple that sees it as still being built, still growing. Why is that important? There are more and more people that are gonna join the church. More and, pe- more, and more people that are gonna hear the gospel and come to trust Christ as well. And guess what? Part of our job is to go. And make disciples, right? Paul's laying out a vision that reminds me of Isaiah chapter 2 that we looked at our first Sunday together as a church about all of the tribes and tongues and nations coming together to the Mount of the Lord, which was referring really to the Temple of the Lord. And Paul here lays out this vision that hey, Gentiles, Jews, all of us together are coming. Christ is putting us together as one glorious temple. Mind, in verse 17, notice he says, He came and preached peace to you who are far, peace to those who are near. He's making us one. He's talking about evangelism. He's talking about his witness. One other thing to, to keep in mind all of this structure connected to Jesus and in him is growing into this temple. Well, think about what the Jews would have understood from this. Thinking back to the temple that had been destroyed during the Babylonian exile. The earthly presence of the Lord after that was in question. Where is God going to dwell? Where can we go to meet with the Lord? And the prophets came. And they kept talking about a temple that's going to be rebuilt. A temple that's going to be rebuilt. Ezekiel lays it out in all these glorious dimensions. And here, I believe Paul is saying This is the real rebuilding of the temple. It's not a physical place. It's a people. Here's our third sub-point. God's presence on earth is in us. In us collectively. Built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit is resting in us even now as we speak. Think about what that means. When people wanted to meet with God in the Old Testament, they went to the tabernacle or the temple. That's where they went to meet with God. That's where the presence of God was known. That's where it was found. That's where it was revealed. And today, because of what Christ has accomplished, if people want to know the presence of God, they come to his church. Not the physical location to His people. and They're all over the place, aren't they? And we're still supposed to be spreading more and more. The Spirit, yes, dwells in us individually. That's true, but there is something that Paul is describing here about the collective nature of the church, the gathering of God's people. The rebuilt temple was meant not only for ethnic Israel, but for the remnant of all nations. And in the church, it's exactly what we see. In Christian churches across the world, each Lord's Day, each time Christians gather for worship, the presence of God in a unique way is known. We hear his voice from the word, we respond in song, we hear his voice in the sacraments, we cry out to him in our prayers. We hear His voice in the words of peace spoken to us through the Gospel. We depart with grateful hearts, with hope, forward looking to a day that we'll see Him face to face and we tell others. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? Jesus said to her that, look, it's not a matter of which mountain you're going to worship on. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's the church. It's who we are. There's so much in this text. that We could go on and on, but I want to step back for a moment and ask, if this is true, if this description that Paul's laid out for us, maybe it's theoretical in our minds. For some of us, we're going, what does that really mean? Well, if this is true, then what? How do we respond to this truth? Let me break down a few things for us here. First, If we are truly fellow citizens and members of the household of God, that has to change the way we interact. It has to. If what Jesus did was meant to bring us near to each other, if we are being built together into this temple, this temple, which is God's presence on Earth, our actions and our interactions must reflect him and His desire for us. This explains why Paul makes such a big deal about the one anothers throughout his letters. How can we show the world that we are united in our love for Christ by being united in our love for one another? But that doesn't just happen, beloved. It means that we're intentional about drawing near to one another. A few of the brothers were together yesterday and we were discussing life as as Christians and one of the comments made by one of them was that we need to build margin into our lives as Christians. Why? So that we have the time to be intentional about building relationships in the church. To love each other well. Amen. Let's do it. Let me me give you an idea of how you can start. Build margin into your life. Sundays after church, you're not going to rush off. Your guests can wait. You're going to find brothers and sisters here and you are going to be intentional about getting to know them, getting to understand who they are and going deeper into your friendship, into your relationship with them. Second, we must spend time reflecting on the need to be grounded in Christ, revealed in the apostles' teaching. If that is our foundation, we must never lose sight of it. We must make sure that everything we believe and do aligns with that teaching. Paul alludes to building on top of the foundation with the wrong materials in 1 Corinthians 3. There he says that the work done with the wrong materials will be burned up. Let's beware. Doctrine matters. Truth matters. That's why soon we're going to have more and more opportunities to dig into doctrine together to understand what we believe with greater depth. But that leads to our final thought because it can never be this learning alone. Third, if we are in some glorious and mysterious way, the presence of God on earth, the temple. In a sense, we are Eden. The new Eden. Do you remember the goal originally with Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth? The idea was that Eden should expand and fill the earth. The very presence of God should fill the entire world. There is no greater calling, beloved, than to make the presence of God known. To a world living in darkness, cut off from God. There is a call here implicit for evangelism, for mission. We cannot lose sight of it. To steal from Paul elsewhere, we are the aroma of Christ. Let's fill the world with that aroma in the way we share Jesus, in, in the way we care for the poor and needy, in the way we care for each other, in the way we show honor and respect to everyone around us, in the way we share the Gospel. We're in the kingdom and family of God. God dwells in us collectively. May these truths push us to a deeper love for God, each other, and the lost. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, the images that we get in Scripture about who we are help us to live out who we are. So I pray that these images that Paul laid out for us would leave an indelible mark on our thoughts and our hearts and that we would love each other well as citizens of the same kingdom members of the same family, and that knowing that You dwell in us collectively as Your people, may we shine the light of Christ to the ends of the earth. And when people meet us, when people come to the church, when they meet believers together, may they taste and see the presence of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen.